In his book, The Upside of Down, Dr. Joe Stoll, former president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, related a story that was carried in the local newspaper about a clergyman who was not only liberal theologically speaking, but sociologically as well. His sermons regularly carried the theme of the fact that everybody was good, the goodness of everyone. Only environments were evil, okay? He sided against the police and often cried out about their brutality. He supported laws that favored the rights of the criminal over the rights of the victim. He often cast his lot with the American Civil Liberties Union in their social action endeavors. Needless to say, his views were a source of consternation to the old-timers in his flock. A week before this clergyman was scheduled to speak to his church's senior citizens group, he was mugged by hoodlums on the street who robbed and beat him mercilessly. He was injured and shaken both emotionally and philosophically. He nearly canceled the engagement, but then thought better of it and showed up in bandages and in a sling. As he began his speech, he told how the mugging had caused him to rethink his social positions. And he admitted that he had been shaken to the core, yet to the group's surprise, he said that in spite of it, he had decided that he would not let that violent episode change his views of his theology. He would go on preaching as he always had. Shocked, a woman in the last row stood up and shouted, mug him again! <laughs> mug him again! Dr. Stoll then asked the pertinent question, who is it that needs to be changed? Who needs to be changed? Well, the answer is we do. It's amusing, wrote Stowell, how we go through life feeling that everyone else ought to change and we know just how it should be done. It never seems to cross our minds that God may wish to change us. That sentiment permeates the text that we're going to study today, about to react with. We may read the text and come away thinking, why in the world didn't the Pharisees see it? Why didn't they get what was going on in this situation? Why in the face of all this evidence did they reject Christ as the one who was sent from God to be their savior? How many times would God have to mug them before they would change? But the real weight of the matter this morning doesn't rest upon the Pharisees' ability to get it or inability to get it, but on us. How many times will God have to mug me or you before his message gets through to us, whatever that message may be at the time? Before we begin to change our minds and begin to see the light of what he's trying to teach us, the significant issue of this day is not what the Pharisees failed to grasp. It's what you and I might miss in the process when we read. Now, God doesn't really mug us, does he? But again, as Joe Stowell pointed out in his book, he does meet us on the streets of our existence to bring about change in our lives. The question today is, will we let him change us? Someone has said that Christianity in its purest form is nothing more than seeing Jesus. To see his majesty and to imitate him, that is the sum of Christianity. Seeing Jesus and allowing him to change us is what the miracle of John chapter 9 is all about. It's a lesson in contrasts, a snapshot of controversy. The controversy that is always brought about by an encounter with Jesus. Jesus' healing of the beggar blind from birth is a signpost that points us to a Savior, the Savior that we all need. It's a supernatural flash of spiritual light that will either blind us or it will awaken us. The question is, which will it be for you? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9, if you would. And we're going to look at, get it now, verses 1 to 41. <laughs> Did you pack a lunch? No, I'm just kidding. 
I'm not going to read the text to you. I'm going to work down through it. So no one would argue here with the, with the fact that a remarkable healing captures tremendous attention today. Is that right? You hear about healings all over the place, and it captures everyone's attention. Well, it was no different in Jesus' day. We tend to think that, you know, during Jesus' time, these things were happening all the time. Well, they weren't. The Apostle John makes no bones about the fact that Jesus threw the acceptable order of things into an uproar, and especially where the religious leaders of the day were concerned. And in this passage here, I'm going I'm to suggest to you seven stages of spiritual insight that we all need to come to in this passage. And John's launching point presents us with no small dilemma. So we're going to start out with the illusion and the correction. The illusion and the correction in verses 1 to 7. Follow along with me as I read. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. By the way, we're all born, born blind, aren't we, spiritually speaking? That's why we need to be born again. Okay? Blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Look at the disciples' curiosity here in the first two verses, right? Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? In other words, what, what did he do to deserve this? What Was it his parents who brought this about? That hardly seems fair, Jesus. Why has this man suffered since birth with blindness? And the questions that they ask really touch us, don't they? Hits us right where we are. Because who among us has never wondered and asked the questions, why me, God? Why her? Why him? Why that family? Why do bad things happen to good people? This is the only miracle recorded in the Gospels in which the person had suffered with an affliction from birth. It's a very unique miracle, John records. The popular illusion of Jesus' day was that when people were hit with a tragedy of this kind of thing, it was because they deserved it. That was the view. And the fact that this person was born with an affliction posed a real dilemma sparking a debate that still goes on even today. The Jews believed that every affliction was the result of some specific and personal sin. This was Job's three friends' view, right? about Job. In fact, they believed that sin could actually be committed in utero. So what the Jews believed. According to one commentator, the rabbis had concluded from Genesis chapter 25, verses 22 to 26, that in the womb, that passage talks about Jacob and Esau struggling with each other in the, in the womb. And they believed that in the womb, Esau had tried to kill Jacob so he could sin even in the womb. Another common belief was that afflictions from birth could be the result of a sin committed by the parents and the punishment was being poured out on the child. They based that notion on Old Testament scriptures such as Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. You'll recognize this from the Ten Commandments. You shall not worship them, speaking of other gods, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, here it is, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
This kind of thing was also repeated in Exodus 34, 7 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Now, at first glance, when you read that, it seems that what the disciples were referring to was valid. They had a valid concern, right? Yet in reality, these words of Scripture are referring to, get this now, the cumulative consequences and effects of sin, not the individual responsibility for it. Okay? You following me? So, Ezekiel 18.20 says this, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Now, you have to have a good, solid theological view of this because it, it applies practically to people. I've spoken with godly people who have been devastated by thoughtless Christians as well as heartless preachers that falsely teach that the birth defects and the handicaps of their children were the direct result of sins which they had committed before the baby was born. Maybe even before they were married. Now, I'm not referring here to addiction issues that may have played a part in the person's life that organically affected the child. And I think that that's kind of similar to what those verses I just read were talking about. The cumulative effects of sin that you experience. It's not the punishment for it. It's just the residual result of it. These parents were carrying around a weight of guilt that was absolutely unbearable and absolutely unnecessary. Is it any wonder that they were becoming skeptical about the good news of Jesus Christ? At the same time, I'm equally intrigued by something Philip Yancey once pointed out in his fantastic book entitled The Jesus I Never Knew. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it yet. But during his research, for that book at the time that he wrote, and he had noticed a remarkable change since the time of Christ in how people thought about calamity and affliction. And this is what he wrote in that book. Quote, nowadays we tend to blame God both for the cataclysmic, which insurance companies call acts of God, right? And for the trivial, for example, at the 1994 Winter Olympics, when speed skater Dan Jansen scraped the ice and lost the 500-meter race once again, how many of you saw that? Remember that? His wife, Robin, cried out instinctively these words, Why God again? God can't be that cruel, unquote. A few months later, he writes, a young woman wrote Dr. James Dobson this letter, quote, four years ago I was dating a man and became pregnant. I was devastated. I asked God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? <laughs> then Yancey asks a poignant question. He says, exactly what role, I cannot help but wonder, did God play in an ice skater losing control on a turn and a young couple losing control on a date. We blame God for everything. People don't often have an accurate view of God's role in the midst of their problems because he is obscured by a host of unbiblical myths that we hold on to. Let me suggest five of the most prevalent myths concerning the problem of pain and suffering. Number one, pain equals punishment. It's a myth. Pain is unproductive. It's a myth. Pain equals spiritual failure. Another myth. Pain is not good. Big myth. And pain is incompatible with a God who is good and all-powerful. That is a gigantic myth given Jesus on the cross. These myths are, are no different than the pharisaical errors of Jesus' day. 
They saw everything from birth defects to natural disasters as God's hand of punishment for sin. And it colored the way they viewed people and altered the way that they treated people. Unfortunately, however, that spirit is still alive today. I can give you one example from history. AIDS. Although it's not talked about much these days, how do you view it? Do you see it as a direct judgment of God on the specific sin of homosexuality? How you answer that question will directly affect the way that you minister or not minister to those who may have AIDS. In fact, we could replace this blind beggar in the text with someone suffering from that devastating disease. If you were to encounter that person, what would be the first questions to enter your mind? Think about that. What would you ask Jesus? Let me take a wild guess. First question, is that person gay? A drug addict? Sexually promiscuous? How did he or she contract it? You know what that sounds a lot like to me? Rabbi, who sinned? The person or someone whose blood he or she was in connected with? That just hits a little too close to home, doesn't it? It's ultimately true that all spiritual and physical sickness and afflictions are the result of sin entering into the world and the human race through Adam, right? You can read that in Psalm 51 and in Romans chapter 5. But that every disability and trial we experience is the direct result of some specific sin we've committed is simply not accurate, nor is it sound scriptural teaching. That is beyond our ability or authority to identify. As Warren Wearsby rightly observes, only God knows why babies are born with handicaps. Only God can turn those handicaps into something that will bring good to people and glory to his name. Only God. As Jesus clearly points out in this text. You see, these disciples were concerned with the absolute wrong thing. They saw the man as an object of controversy. Jesus saw the man as an opportunity for compassion. Their first reaction was, who sinned? How did it happen? Jesus' concern was, what can we do for him? Jesus always took the high road. He placed himself above the controversy and acted with compassion. The disciples cared only about the man's sin. Jesus cared about the man's sight. But more than that, he cared about the man's soul. As we'll see in this passage. See, we're prone to do this to the same malady, writes one author. It's it's more comfortable to be curious about another's pain than it is to be compassionate and constructive. We often spend more time talking about people's problems than we spend reaching out to help them in their problems. We spend more time wondering why than we do praying for them. Compassion, the author says, must always rise above the curiosity. And so Jesus takes them there and he corrects them in verses 3, 4, and 5. Jesus answered, it was neither that man, that this man sinned nor his parents. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's interesting to note that Jesus does not clarify the issue for them necessarily, does he? Rather, he corrects their focus. As they looked to the past asking the question, through what cause, Jesus redirected their attention to the future, answering an entirely different question, to what end? doesn't matter what caused it, the end of it is going to be to the glory of God, Jesus said. Jesus denied that anyone's sin caused this blindness. He never said what caused the blindness, but emphasized the opportunity that it presented to them to display the works of God. He didn't suggest that God caused the blindness as a way to make himself look good, through the healing, but Jesus simply pointed out that his blindness presented them with an opportunity to manifest God's glory and God's grace. 
And that is what Christ followers are supposed to be about at all times, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And that there's only so much time in which to do the work, right? Jesus' time was limited, as he said here. While I am in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. But we must work the works of him, in verse 4, who sent me as long as it is day, because night's coming when no one can work. In other words, we only have a limited time. The dark night of the cross was fast approaching, and while the opportunity presented itself, Christ and his followers were supposed to be seizing the day. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world, Jesus said. And he was about to give them a very concrete example of being the light of the world. Verses 6 and 7. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made the clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent, and he went away, washed, and came back seeing. There's a lot of parallels that have been drawn about the method of Christ's healing here. Jesus could have just spoken to the man, said, receive your sight, but he didn't. It was very unique the way that he performed this miracle. He used his saliva, his spit, viewed by the way, Saliva was viewed by those in Jesus' day as curative. Interesting. And he made clay with his spit using the dust of the ground, kind of reminiscent of man's origin, right? And then Jesus touched the man's eyes with the clay, a powerful gesture of compassion and reassurance to the man. And he solicited the man's obedience by asking him to go and do something. What did he ask him to do? Go wash in the pool of Siloam. On the southeast section of the city, on the exact opposite side of the city from the temple. It's interesting that the name of the pool, Siloam, was translated means sent. And the reason why it was named that was because the water in it was sent through a conduit into the city. Jesus was the one sent from God to do his works and to bring salvation to people. He is the light of the world and offers to all who will receive him the water of life. You see all these little parallels in this passage? You could plumb the depths of this stuff forever. John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38 says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink, and let him keep coming to me. Let him keep drinking is really what the literal grammar says. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, which all points to the fact that Jesus is our true Siloam. Jesus is our Siloam, the one sent by the Father to whom this blind man and every one of us must ultimately come to wash and to receive true cleansing and spiritual sight. Verse 7 here says, And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. The display of God's glory in the man's life depended on his obedience to Christ. God was glorified through the healing, but this man had to obey and do what Christ told him to do. And so it is with you and me, isn't it? When dealing with a painful situation in our life that may involve the forgiveness of someone who has wronged us, Jesus whispers, forgive them. Let it go. Leave it with me. That is the pool in which we must wash. When you face a major decision in your life and Christ says to you, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You don't try to make it 
happen all in your own time according to your own agenda. You don't abandon what you know to be true according to God's word. You trust in him. You look, you listen, you wash in the pool of his will and obey what he says. This man obeyed and he came back the changed person. God's grace was poured out upon him. God's glory was manifested in him. And as the chapter unfolds, we find that this man's faith began to grow. There are so many messages contained in the remainder of this chapter that they will require an entire series in and of themselves. But my intent today is to only present the snapshot of this miracle. The fact is, what ensues in the rest of this chapter is the profound development of a healed man's faith in a matter of hours. And you can see it develop. Someone has summarized the progression of this chapter incredibly well. What began as a tragic tale of one man's blindness ends as a surreal tale of everyone else's blindness. The stages of the cured man's journey of faith in Christ can be tracked simply by the statements that this man makes about Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at here. Track with me now. So secondly here, the illumination and the confusion. I'm going to read verses 8 to 12. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. And so they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Stage one of this man's faith, okay? The man who is called Jesus. They asked him, how were your eyes open? All this guy has right now for knowledge is that I don't know, but Jesus did it. The man who was called Jesus. Small seed of faith, right? The poor man's healing caused a division among his own neighbors. They actually questioned as to whether this was really the man who was born blind who used to sit and beg alms. They, they make him prove his identity. And they ask the question that this man hears at least four other times by the end of this chapter by different groups. Look at it, verse 10. How then were your eyes open? And if you go down through the text, you'll find out that they, were, they asked that question in verse 10. The Pharisees asked how in verse 15. Verse 15. Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. Verse 19, the Pharisees asked his parents how he received his sight. And then in verse 26, the Pharisees asked the man again how he received his sight. You know what? They were asking the wrong question. Instead of asking how, they should have been asking who. Who. But the Pharisees were not interested in hearing that Jesus performed yet another sign which clearly pointed to the fact that he was truly the Messiah. They didn't want that message to get out. They wanted to get rid of the evidence. So they were so intent on the process of how the miracles were performed that they missed the person performing them. And we're the same way, aren't we? We want to understand the hows and the whys of God's actions and the mechanics of our situation instead of just trusting him in it. Friends, Jesus doesn't really care if we understand the process every time, but he is intensely interested in whether or not we experience him in the process. Notice the man's first step in his relationship to Christ. He identifies him only as the man who is called Jesus. No theological evaluation here. No sensational claims. He simply identified him as the one who cured him. Jesus did it. Now we move to the investigation and the contention in verse 13. Follow with me as I read down to 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. 
And now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now we're getting to it, aren't we? Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Straightforward. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. Plain and simple. Not from God. Because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Stage two in his development of faith. The man who was called Jesus, now he's a prophet. As always, the Pharisees got into the fray in all of this, right? They were not about to withhold judgment until they could investigate further. They already had a prejudice against Jesus by this point. He healed the man on the Sabbath. A pattern which Jesus seemed to adopt quite deliberately, right? This man cannot possibly be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath, they say. But the reality of the matter is that he didn't follow their interpretation of the Sabbath. In fact, in this miracle alone, Jesus broke at least three of their man-made laws. Number one, he made clay on the Sabbath, therefore he worked. That's probably why he made the clay. He healed on the Sabbath, which was forbidden by law. Medical attention could only be given, get this, in their interpretation of the law, if life was an actual danger. And in the event that it was given, it was only to keep the patient from getting worse and not to make him better. It was actually forbidden to set a broken limb or pour cold water over a dislocated hand or foot, according to their law. And then thirdly, it was written that, quote, as to fasting spittle, it is not lawful to put it so much as upon the eyelids, unquote. Think Jesus had a purpose in this miracle? Jesus had struck out with them. Three strikes, you're out. In fact, they wouldn't even speak his name. They referred to him as this man. But some of them questioned how a man who was a sinner could do these incredible signs. And it says that there was a division among them. And Jesus always divides the crowd, doesn't he? Always. On at least three occasions, John records that people were divided over Christ. In John 7, verse 43, they were divided over his person. Here in 9, 16, over his power. And then again in chapter 10, verse 19, over his proclamation. And when you walk into a room today, my friends, and bring up the name of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, and why everyone in the world needs him, you will polarize that crowd. Guaranteed. There will be a division. It's inevitable. It's what you say about Jesus in the midst of that crowd that really identifies what stage you're in in your own faith. I'm impressed by this man's stance. He was not to be intimidated by the Pharisees' religious banter. Right? He was a beggar. He was a man that was born blind, blind from birth. I'm sure he didn't feel too great about the Pharisees and the way that they treated him. When asked of his view of who Jesus was in light of the healing, this man states with unshakable intensity, he is a prophet. His vision was well beyond 2020 already. Here is the second step in his road to faith. Under intense scrutiny, he begins to see Jesus as more than just a mere man, but a prophet. In the Old Testament, you know, that prophets alone had the power to truly heal people. In fact, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah himself would be characterized by the ability to open blind eyes. In in Isaiah chapter 42... Verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, speaking of the servant, 
capital S, meaning the Messiah, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, interesting, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Jesus attributes those verses of Isaiah to himself in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Jesus stands up in the synagogue. The book's handed to him. He reads from the prophet Isaiah, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down as a teacher. The eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fixed on him, and Jesus said, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Amazing, isn't it? Pharisees were so intent on carrying out their own will that they would blatantly ignore the word of God and what the word of God told them. And they knew the word of God. They were experts in it. When it came to dealing with Jesus, they were more than willing to completely sidestep what they know, knew to be true. And it begs the question to you and me, will we do the same thing? When we know something is true by the word of God, will we sidestep it and ignore it? Not only will the confession of Jesus bring division to a crowd, but also it brings division to a family. The Pharisees were not about to stop alone with questioning this man, but brought in his parents to discredit the miracle. But it backfired on them, didn't it? Let's look at the interrogation and the coercion, beginning in verse 18 of John 9. Verse 18, And the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't have any idea. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. Ah, but they weren't being truthful, were they? Verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And for this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Under this thumb of religious pressure, the man's parents wavered in their own faith. They couldn't handle the threat of being literally unsynagogued. Excommunication was a big deal to the Jews. It was tantamount to being dead to the community if you were thrown out. Ostracized, shunned, put out, basically, of the community. And the parents buckled at the thought of that. Verse 22 says they were afraid of them. This is what fear does to people. It wasn't the first time it happened either. If you look at chapter 7, verse 13, it happened to some, to others. Actually, in verse 7, chapter 7, I mean, verse 13, beginning in verse 12, there was much grumbling about among the crowds concerning him, meaning Jesus. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And it wouldn't be the last time it happened either. Because in 1242, we read the same thing. Chapter 12 and verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Don't let fear Ring out your faith. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord, he shall be exalted. 
tell me, which do you think is more serious, being excommunicated from a false religious tradition or rejecting the truth and being lost for eternity? Let me ask that question again. Which is more serious to you? Which is more telling about you? Which are you more worried about, being excommunicated from a false religious tradition or rejecting the truth and being lost for eternity? I remember I had to wrestle with this question when I came to faith in Jesus Christ because of the religious tradition I was brought up in. And I knew by receiving Jesus it was going to totally wreck my family. That pressure is still on today. I know people personally who so fear what their parents or friends will say or do if they are put their faith in Jesus Christ that they're willing to trade the offer of eternal life in order to avoid the conflict. And it keeps them from coming to Christ. But Jesus isn't willing to barter with people on this issue. Sorry, it will not happen. Someday when you stand before Christ, if that's you, and you say, but, 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 this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake, he will find it. So unlike his parents, however, this once blind man was not the least bit intimidated by these Pharisees. And in one of the greatest face-offs in the entire New Testament, in my opinion, this beggar looked them square in the eye and taunted them on their own turf, exposing their irrational, tight-fisted grip on a straw house religious system which was about to unravel and fall apart before their eyes. So now we move into the intimidation and the conviction. Verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he then answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I love this. He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him. And they said, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. Can you see them clenching their teeth and... They're white-knuckled at this point. Probably spitting while they're talking. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing, he does his will, God hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in your sins, and are you teaching us? And so they put him out. Give glory to God, they said. What that was, that statement was an invocation. It was invoking common terminology of cross-examination. You find that in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 7, verse 19. Give glory to God. In other words, tell us the truth. We know this man's a sinner. Throughout the text, they repeated the self-indicting words. We know, we know, we know, right? Verse 24, verse 29. They were cocksure. They were petty-minded, self-righteous legalists who thought they knew everything there was to know. But this man knew only one thing, that Jesus healed him. 
And that could not be done by just any man. Now that his eyes had been opened, he began to see the holes perforating the Pharisees' religious beliefs and boldly responds to their claim, so-called claim, to know. One thing I do know, he said in verse 25, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, yet I see. And in verses 28 and 29, they claimed to be disciples of Moses, but they weren't disciples of Moses because if they had been, they would have believed in Jesus. Jesus already indicted them on that once before on this very issue in John chapter 5. He says, Moses, Moses spoke of me. If you believed in him, you'd believe me. And then in verse 30, the man says, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he's from. And the climax is when this man takes another step towards saving faith, he takes it this way when he proclaims that Jesus must be from God. This is stage three in the man's faith development process. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, i.e., this man must be from God. There's the stages. The man called Jesus, he's a prophet, this man must be from God. You see how it's developing? He's gone from the man who's called Jesus to the belief that he's from God. Throughout the course of this man's growth in grace, these teachers of the law were groaning bitterly in disgrace, right? They reviled him in verse 28. They reproached him by their only recourse, irrational character assassination. You were born entirely in your sins, they said to him, and you are trying to teach us? In the end, these religious hypocrites cling to their time-worn theories of punishment, and they toss him out of the synagogue. And the Pharisees considered themselves cautious conservatives. But you know what they really were? I love what Warren Wearsby calls them. In reality, they were not conservatives. They were preservatives. <laughs> A true conservative takes the best of the past and uses it. But he is also aware of the new things that God's doing. A preservative simply embalms the past and preserves it. He is against change and resists the new things that God is doing. They completely missed God in an attempt to preserve not biblical truth, mind you, but the man-made heresy of their own religious system. Reviled, reproached, and finally removed. And an incredible thing happens here. Jesus seeks that man out. Notice that. Jesus seeks him. And while stale, empty, oppressive religion throws the man out of the synagogue, the grace of Jesus draws him in. And that's the way it always is, isn't it? So we move to the, the identification and the conversion in verse 35. We're winding it up here. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him. That's interesting, huh? You've seen him, man born blind. And he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I love that. I love this section right here. The good shepherd always cares for his sheep. He gives them life and he will never cast them out. That's what it says in John 6. That's what it says in John 10. Jesus gave this man more than his sight. He gave him life eternal. Notice the progress of his faith again. In verse 11, the man called Jesus. In verse 17, he is a prophet. Verse 33, this man is from God. Verses 35 to 38 here, he is called the Son of Man. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And then he worshipped him. The man not only had open eyes, but an open heart. And that's what you and I need to have 
if we're going to come to saving faith in Christ. That's what you need to have if you're going to come to saving faith in Christ. It's not enough to believe that he is the man called Jesus. Sorry, that doesn't cut it. It's not enough to believe that he's a prophet or even a man of God. Ultimately, you must believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he is Lord. That's what it says here in this text. That's what this man said. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This guy was born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. The Pharisees claimed to love the Father, but they didn't love the Father because they didn't love this guy. What happened that day was not that formal religion excommunicated a man. It was that a man intimately related to Christ excommunicated an empty religion. And that's always a good thing. Finally, the implication and the confrontation. Verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. So where are you in this scenario? Are you blind? Or do you see? Christianity in its purest form is nothing more than seeing Jesus. Do you really see Jesus today? The bottom line is this. Whenever a person is confronted with Jesus, that person passes judgment upon himself. Chapter 5 in John's Gospel, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of judgment into life. Passed out of death, judgment into life. Only the one who realizes his own weakness can become strong. Only the one who recognizes his own blindness can learn to see. Only the one who admits his own sin can be forgiven for it. And only the one who receives Jesus can have eternal life. Let me end with this. A famous communist philosopher once made this remark concerning Jesus. Quote, I do not know much about this man. But I do know that his whole life conveys this one message. That anyone, at any moment, can start a new future. Pretty insightful for an atheist. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Lord God in heaven. It is true that anyone at any moment can start a new future with you. And that your life clearly portrays that. Father, I pray that we take whatever lessons that we can glean from this passage of Scripture that is so familiar to us, to most of us, try to find our place in it and learn from it. Thank you, Lord God, that you have opened our eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ in this text. Who he is, he is Lord of all. And so we sing to him now and we worship him now, even as the man who was healed from his blindness since birth fell down and worshipped him, so we worship you, Lord God. May you receive glory, honor, and praise from our lips and from our entire lives. For your sake, I pray. Amen.